This is The Guardian. Hello and welcome to The Guardian Football Weekly. Just one weekend left of the Premier League season. Not long until we can take a well-earned summer mini-retirement. Brighton confirm European football with a creditable draw against Manchester City. We'll assess the achievement and then look ahead to the only important thing left, the three-way battle to stay in the Premier League. It's in Everton's hands. Feels like nothing should ever be in Everton's hands. Leicester or Leeds could capitalise. Archie joins us from one-team league Germany where that one team might not actually win it. A title race. Is there anyone on earth not hoping Dortmund get over the line at the weekend there's an england squad to be furious about a grave apology from john bruin your questions and that's today's guardian football weekly on the panel today barry glendenning welcome hello hello lucy ward hi max and hello paul mckinnis hello there max let's start at the amex then brighton won Manchester City won. A brilliant game of football. Got this message from Jack, which is quite long, but I, I liked it. It says, I just wanted to say how wonderful this season has been as a Brighton fan. When my dad started taking me at four, we were 91st in the Football League. And I thought Richie Barker would be the greatest player I'd get to see in the blue and white stripes. I was besotted. I got to hang out with my dad and share something we loved, however rubbish the football was. Of course, things have evolved. And with Tony Bloom's support, we've become a Premier League side with a pretty wonderful structure, stadium, squad, staff, training ground, etc. Almost guarantees we'll never return to the days of the with Dean. When thinking of where we've come from, our current position, the joy of Deserby's football is nothing sort of preposterous. Tonight, I watched the highest quality of football I've ever seen live. And it was everything you could ever hope watching your team could be. We get to see the miracles every week, living the dream of the majority of match-going fans in this country right now. 26 years ago, my dad took me to Gillingham to watch the Albion and I fell in love. I cannot stop laughing at the idea of him and I heading to the San Siro or Ajax next season. How silly, how wonderful. And I guess that, you know, that, Paul, is what football is about, right? The dream and and Brighton are living it. Absolutely, absolutely. And that's really well put and really nice to hear because I was at, I was at um, the Amex on, on Sunday for their, their win over Southampton and there were some people in the stands who were actually moaning at the players like, when they gave the ball away. And I was like, that is football fandom too. But yeah, I think, I think enjoy the moment, appreciate the moment. And, and he's right about the quality of football yesterday. I mean, Brighton were on it, uh, particularly the first half. I think sort of both teams sort of settled a little bit in the second, but the first half was all action, incredible technique. But what I love about Brighton is that that in the Deserby system, you know, they take risks and they play with imagination. Those those sort of those punching balls from the centre backs, particularly Colwell, you know, that, that sort of sets these moves on when they've got the when they judge it's right, and then kind of gives those three players behind the striker the opportunity to kind of improvise and 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 and, and do something. You know, that, that what's Enciso. I think he was, uh, I think it was Kyle Walker. He had to, Kyle Walker had to go into emergency hack down operation. But then CISO just rolled him to, to kind of, you know, to make the next phase of play. It was just beautiful to watch, uh, exciting. And, and just there's a sort of, uh, liberty, a sort of freedom about the way they play, which I, I really hope continues. Why can't every team play like that, Lucy? Like, it, like, just it's so fun, isn't it? Yeah, it's it's. Fun. I mean, just for a bit of perspective, the with Dean was the best best pitch I ever played on when we used to play Brighton in <laughs> women's football. So there you go, seeing it from a it from a different angle. Anyway, yeah, I, I love Brighton. I love Deserby. I think he's he, he's sort of taken 
Brighton, I think, what's the what's the uh, quote to another level? You know, he's he's he sort of ran with what um, Graham Potter did with them, but I think he just takes a, a few more risks. They bait the press, they encourage the press right onto even the goalkeeper, and then they just pass, 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 pass. And they even did it. And Man City had to man to man mark them really um, to try sort of get a little bit of control of the game. But yeah, I mean. In terms of something, a game that didn't really have any stakes, it was really aesthetically pleasing watching that last night because it was, you know, there wasn't, they weren't right on the edge. They were just playing how both teams play, and I, I, I quite like that. And I loved that the goal and CISO's goal because all the City fans behind were just like one of them was clapping before it went in. It couldn't have got in any better place, and I love that. He's only a teenager as well. They just, they just, they like Brentford. They just keep producing these players. Yeah, we'll lose them, but they'll go when we want them to go, and then we'll produce someone else that that we think is just as good with just as much potential. Yeah, there's a sort of Harlem Globetrotters feel about this football match, Baz. Like they're all like we're all really good. That doesn't really matter, but we might as well make a go of it, all of us. And, you know, I, I think Foden tried to sort of no-look pass in his own box. It's <laughs> probably not a good idea, but it sort of set the tone for what we were going to see. And and I think City deserve credit for really putting on a show. They're all hungover. There's nothing at stake for them. It didn't matter if they lost, but they, they were obviously trying. Draw is probably a fair result. And, you know, I, I can only add to the plot. I think everyone seems to like Brighton. And they're just the the epitome of how, how a club should be run. And they, they're all, there's no baggage with the ownership. You know, some people might disapprove, disapprove of Tony Bloom making his money out of gambling and playing poker and whatnot. But I wouldn't have any problem with that. And then I suppose the questions now are, can they kick on in the Premier League if they're also playing in the Europa League? They'll probably lose Moyes Casido and Alexis McAllister. Will there be players available to step up? You know, how will they strengthen their squad and with whom? Will it be players with players we know or players we've never heard of? And all the indications are that they'll be fine. They, they, You know, the answers to all those questions will be, yeah, they'll be fine. And if you look at the results this season, they've beaten Man United away, took four points off Liverpool, beat Chelsea home and away, beat Arsenal away, drew at Man City, spanked six past Wolves and got to the FA Cup semi-final. Like, what a season that's been for them. Yeah, I, I, just to follow on from what Barry was saying there, I, 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 you know, obviously what they've done is incredible. The number of teenagers they had on the pitch yesterday, and I think, you know, if you count in Gilmore, who's 22, and uh, Caicedo, you've got, yeah, I think it was half a dozen players, you know, under 23s in, this, in the side yesterday, and that's in, incredible to see them playing at that high level. But I think that you probably have to acknowledge there's been a little bit of uh, fortune, not in the sense that they've got away with anything, but that to have both Caicedo and McAllister, who weren't sort of regular starters last season, for them both to come into the team and play like senior pros, be the heart of that side, be so reliable and consistent all the way across the season. Now, I'm sure there's an aspect of recruitment where you look at the psychological aspect of it and you look at how can these people cope with pressure a stupid man being another, you know, come straight into the team and just, you know, upgrade, so reliable. That sort of stuff, I think, is 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 hard to get right. It's the hardest bit of all. And if, if as as Barry says, they lose two of those next season, 
th- that will be a challenge, I think, to replace all of that. Mm. They've, they've, they've sort of lost players before who haven't necessarily, I think, immediately, Basuma, who haven't, for whatever reason, gone on and, and performed elsewhere. So it'll be interesting to see also how McAllister and Caicedo do if they end up at Liverpool or Arsenal. They're the sort of rumours, aren't they? But I sort of think in the Europa League, Lucy, they might really give that a go. And, and they've got a chance there. Yeah, I mean, I've... I followed um, Arsenal this season, the Europa League and, and West Ham last season. If you can get a little bit of consistency and, and basically try and have an 11 that sort of play in the Europa League with the, the, the changes that you might make and then your Premier League and then you try and keep that going, it actually it actually is there in sight. And Arsenal should have, I mean, obviously they were going for the league, so probably had their eye on other things. But I think if you're a Brighton and you can keep things going in the Premier League, the, the, the Europa League is doable for a team like Brighton. And they'll obviously we'll have to to to, to um, make the squad a little bit bigger. But I think they might go for that, you know. I mean, if you can get used to Thursday, Sunday, psychologically, then um, I think it's definitely doable. Jake says, my mate John has been moaning at me that the pod hasn't talked enough about Brighton. Apparently Southampton was one of the biggest results in their history. Cementing European football. Could Barry please tell him he's talking horse shit, please? Uh, on, the, on the subject, the Aston Villa fan you accused of talking horse shit was very apologetic. And had got us muddled up, he said, with a rival podcast because he listens to both for some unknown reason. But he was very polite about being yelled at. But I think we probably got Oh, OK. Well, there's no need for that, you know. <laughs> and Boomstrunk says... No no need for the apology, I mean. No, no. Um, Boomstrunk says, why aren't Man City showing signs of being on the screaming piss for days after winning the league at the weekend? Unlike Everton in 85, who allegedly stank of booze in a 4-1 defeat to Coventry. The game's gone. Um, Pep did say they had drunk all the alcohol in Manchester. I'm not sure I totally believe him. That story about that, when Neil, my partner, Neil Redfern, got promoted to the Premier League with Barnsley, I think that the the next game that they had, I think, was away somewhere like Southampton and they lost 5-0 and they were all absolutely ratted still. So that's a good example of doing it properly. I've got to say, Lucy... Neil Redfern being a footballer who goes on the screen piss is not a massive surprise to me. But I, you know. <laughs> He's not a drinker to be, well, he might have been then, but um, definitely not now. <laughs> right. Well, I take it back. Some mutual backslapping. Uh, Pep said, pay attention to what I'm about to say. I'm convinced in what I'm saying that Roberto De Zerbi is one of the most influential football managers in the last 20 years. De Zerbi said to Pep, I think Pep Guardiola's football is unreachable. It's nice when you've all got what you wanted and don't have anything to play for. I mean, that's that's the kind of thing Pep usually says before a game. Yeah. When he's very confident that they're City are about to to win 5 nil, he, He's always talking up Eddie Howe, especially when he was Bournemouth manager, and then they go out and give them an absolute spanking. Yeah, he, he's already been talking up Inter, uh, who uh, who won the Supercopper last night, actually, against uh, Fiorentina. Uh, Michael says, given how much power Pep wields at Manchester City, will the lawyers make sure the investigation is over and done within the next 24 hours, as he has requested? Speaking before the game, he said, what I would like is if the Premier League and judges could make something as soon as possible, then if we have done something wrong, everyone will know it. And if we are, like we believe as a club for many years, uh, doing things in the right way, then the people will stop talking about it. We would love it tomorrow. The afternoon is better than tomorrow. Hopefully they're not so busy and the judges can see both sides and decide what is the best. Because in the end, I know fairly what we won. We won on the pitch and we don't have any doubts. Uh, let's go. Don't wait two years. Why don't we do it quicker in 24 hours? Sit down with lawyers' presence. Let's have it soon as possible for the benefit of everyone. If only we could uh, figure out what is holding up the investigation. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, 
The wheels of justice famously move very slowly, Max, and they move even slower if lawyers from Manchester City are throwing sticks in between the spokes at every opportunity. Um, uh, so we'll keep close attention on that. Elsewhere, Manchester United play Chelsea tonight. They need a point to secure top four, but they pretty much got it uh, anyway. Um, Frank Lampard's lost seven of his nine games in charge, but he's on a two-game unbeaten run. David Ornstein of The Athletic reporting that Mason Mount's leaning towards joining Manchester United if Chelsea are to sell him. Quite interesting. We'll get to it in a later pod about how much business Chelsea have to do before the end of June for FFP purposes. But to the bottom of the table, final day of the Premier League. It's all about the relegation battle. If I've worked this out correctly, if Everton win, they're safe. If Everton draw or lose and Leicester win, Leicester are safe. If Everton lose, Leicester don't win and Leeds win, they are safe. If Everton draw, Leicester don't win and Leeds win by three goals, they are safe on goals scored. Uh, With your Leeds hat on, Lucy, how are you feeling? Uh, Do you know what? Fuming. And that is a reflection of all Leeds fans. This all started before Bielsa went. So basically, the powers that be, Chief Executive Angus Kinnear, the Sporting Director Victor Orta and the owner... Dre Radrazani, got absolutely pissed on the power that Bielsa gave them. And Bielsa did extraordinary things with that team, but they just got carried away in terms of they just thought they'd be okay in the Premier League because of what he did. So they didn't they didn't support him in the January just before they sacked Bielsa. And yeah, it was running out of steam, probably the right time to go, but they didn't really support him in the um, transfer window. Then after a year of thinking prior knowing that Bielsa would probably go at the end of the season anyway, they decided that Jesse Marsh was the correct uh, replacement, which I don't know how they came um, to that because Bielsa played with a lot of width. Jesse Marsh played with not much width. Um, And he was the complete opposite and sort of slagged Bielsa off a little bit by saying that they were overtrained and things like that, which wasn't the best thing to do. It's very difficult to follow Bielsa anyway. And and the powers that be just basked in the reflected glory of what Bielsa thought it would keep them in the Premier League. And then having had a season like last season, weren't really warned at all that that might happen again this season. Um, and they actually backed Jesse Marsh and then sacked him a week later. They bought all the players that he wanted for his system and then sacked him. So, yeah, I think um, I have to say that no real proper plan. Every decision really that they've made since since Bielsa's gone has been the wrong one. I think they've, you know, they've said stuff on social media. Victor Orta's got carried away screaming and shouting from the director's box. So really, it's been a mess. And he's gone now, Victor Orta. I think they had to do something. They had to get rid of, of him because the away fans were actually singing when they were, I, I can't remember which game it was, but the Leeds fans were singing for him to go, Orta. This is a sporting director. So that's how bad it got. Um, and then the fact the players now just look like that they're just beaten um, if you watch the West Ham game, they just didn't have any fight in them. And, uh, you know, it'd be interesting to see what happens. And even if they stay up, if they're very lucky and manage to stay up, something has to change in the in the summer. And if they go down, obviously something has to change. And I think a change of ownership um, may happen, but it's an absolute disgrace what's happened. And that's what everybody, um, you know, associated with Leeds and the Leeds fans think, I think. Sounds pretty positive, Um there, Lucy, uh, across across everything, um, and Sam and Sam Allardyce going in and slagging off his own substitutes with you know a crucial ninety minutes still to go. The mood music isn't good, is it? On the subject of their substitutes, I 
curious to know, Leeds, or Lucy, do you know anything about the, the curious case of Giorgino Rutter? So they they signed him in January from Hoffenheim for a fee rising to up nearly 40 million quid. He's barely played, and he hasn't featured in any of the past six games, despite Leeds' obvious need for a centre-forward. And I've heard and seen it reported, but not widely reported, that the reason he isn't playing is because there's a clause in his contract that means Leeds have to give Hoffenheim another chunk of money if he makes another Premier League appearance. He's already made 10. So uh, that that apparently is the reason he isn't playing. I, I, I don't know if it's true or not, but it wouldn't sound be a huge surprise. I suppose we'll find out on Sunday because Bamford and Rodrigo are both injured, aren't they? Yeah, I mean, it wouldn't surprise me in terms of, like I talked about, that the, the recruitment has been really, really poor with odd um, successes. But, I'm, uh, you know, I mean, odd successes. That, and, and they spent actually quite a lot of money to, to you know, spend that much on a centre-forward. And then probably, re- I mean, they've even had to pay somebody that hasn't even played um, for them that they signed and then decided they didn't want. Um, so, and I have to think they had to pay him sort of Augustine 15, 16 million and, and play the club as well that they got him from. So, yeah, decision making at his finest. And af- after Radrazani actually did really well, after after Cellino went from Leeds, he actually did everything right in terms of dis- his decisions of, well, he couldn't have done much more wrong, but... Um, but then just, like I say, just got carried away and, and not playing the centre-forward that they played the most money for. Is, is I mean, he played for the 21s when they had the playoff games. So, you know, he, he has played and, um, and you know, and started games. So Leeds have Spurs. I mean, they could eminently win even if they don't have any centre-forwards on the pitch. Um, uh, but it is in Everton's hands, Paul, and they're home to Bournemouth. And I really like Bournemouth are good and they're better than we, we think they are. But if you... If you can't beat Bournemouth at home when they don't need anything and you need to win, then that that is a sign that the Premier League might not be for you. But I just can't countenance Everton not being in the Premier League. Well, yeah, that that's weirdly that's that's one thing that's going for them, isn't it? Just that that sort of uh, it, it hasn't happened before. But you know that, that that might be something that plays into their mentality and they kind of do have belief. But you know, playing in that game, there's going to be so much pressure on them and no pressure on Bournemouth. Bournemouth have proven themselves in the Premier League. They know how to go away and, and, and get points, win games. Um, and, you know, Everton have a, a real, apart from that that shellacking um, they, handed, they handed out the other the other week, you know, they, they have a trouble scoring goals. So you, you, you can imagine that the longer it goes on in that game and then the result isn't going in their favour, or even if it is, the tension is going to be really high. Weirdly, I kind of feel like despite the, the 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 sort of negative zero point zero six xg of Leicester's away performance at Newcastle, I kind of feel that 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 might have given them just a little bit of momentum in this. That that first first clean sheet in twenty two games, that you know they're still in the mix when they thought they might not be. Uh, I don't know, and that pressure might be less on them. What do you reckon, Baz? They've got West Ham. Well, it's in Everton's hands, and. I mean, I think the ideal scenario would be for uh, Everton to be drawing going into the last sort of 15, 20 minutes of those games and Leicester and Leeds still in with a shout of winning or winning or in with a shout of winning. I mean, it's it's hard to call. Everton are obviously in the box seat, but who knows? I don't know. 
Well, they're the Premier League matches that matter. We'll cover everything that's happened. There are a few other interesting stories from the Premier League. Uh, Saka's got a new contract. Um, Southampton, well, from the Championship, looking to get Russell Martin in. Um, but we'll cover all of that on Monday, and that'll do for part one. Part two, Archie Rintut will join us because there's a title race in Germany. Part two of the Guardian Football Weekly. Archie Rintut's here. Hey, Archie. Hey, man. So, look at the top of the Bundesliga, and Bayern Munich aren't at the top of it. Uh, Dortmund are home to Mainz. They're two points clear. They know a win gets them their first title since 2011. What's what's happened? Normally, it's kind of close in about March, and then you look away for a moment, and then Bayern are 10 points clear. Well, the key moment came in March, except this time Bayern pressed the self-destruct button and chose to sack Julian Nagelsmann. And... The, if, if you go back even further, to be honest, the biggest determining factor this season in the Bundesliga has been the World Cup. Because the way that Bayern played before the World Cup and individuals such as Jamal Musiala, for example, who lit up the league and went into that tournament with such momentum and has come out the other side a broken... I mean, it's too much to describe him as a man. I think even when he does become a man, I I will struggle with that because he has such a baby face. But the point is, is he's lost momentum. Joshua Kimmich uh, self-prophesied that he he could fall into a hole and has done that. And Bayern's leadership in Hassan Salihamidzic, the sporting director, and Oliver Kahn, the CEO, they took the decision to sack Julian Nagelsmann because of the way that results were going with the hope that Thomas Tuchel would would come in and clean them up a treble. And instead, they are now looking down the barrel of very realistically of not winning anything. And it's, it's very exciting. <laughs> it's very exciting because of, I think if Julian Nagelsmann had, con- had continued, they would have still won something. But you give Dortmund an enormous credit. They were nine points off Bayern at the at the winter break. And they were playing terribly as well. But the biggest difference and the person who's made the most impact, and it's an amazing story because he was diagnosed with testicular cancer last summer after joining the club and has made a, most importantly, made a full recovery and now has somehow come back on the pitch, is Sebastian Haller. He has absolutely uh, yeah, ignited this team. Uh, particularly, I mean, of, of course, going forward and not always scoring the most amount of goals. But yeah, it's, it's huge. And I'm heading to Dortmund on Saturday. And already I've just been thinking about what could happen in terms of potential celebrations because it will be absolutely huge. Is the whole of Germany desperate for Dortmund to win this? Schalke fans, no. Uh, particularly because Dortmund, uh, this this is the, the cherry on the cake possibility for Dortmund, is that they win the title on Saturday and Schalke's relegation is confirmed. Uh, to the point that the Dortmund fans have come up with a song to the tune of Always Look on the Bright Side of Life that Borussia Dortmund will be German champions and Schalke go down 
do 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 do. That quite, what they were singing. Doesn't quite scan. Maybe it scans in German. It does. <laughs> Borussia Dortmund wird Deutscher Meister und Schalke steigt ab. Do 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 do. Right. Okay. Um, but yeah. Um, so that's sweet for them. Uh, Borchum will also not want them to win. They're also down the road and also in a relegation scrap and are fan friends with Bayern Munich. So, but apart from that, I would say that most people are pulling for Borussia Dortmund and also just for Bayern to, yeah, face up to what has been... Uh, yeah, is, is is hubris the right word here? <laughs> Sounds like it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's it's been it's been it's been a long time coming, and I, I think there's also Edin Terzic was a guy who was at the 2012 DFB Cup final as a fan of, of Borussia Dortmund and has gone on to work for the club as well, and his I think emotional energy that he has an intelligence of not just being able to get players in the squad playing well, like Doniel Marlin, who hadn't scored in the first half of the season, Karim Adeyemi also, Emre Chan, Julian Brandt. I mean, you, you end up going through nearly the whole team, but just also the fact that I, I, identification is a big thing in German football and in the shadow that Jurgen Klopp left and looms large as it would at any club given the size of individual that he is uh, he's he's managed to navigate that well and he to tap into that cliche he knows the club and that is really important at Dortmund. Hi Archie Paul McInnes here what's the uh, percentage chance of Dortmund choking it do you think? I'm gonna say 10 because they are so good at home. There is, I've, I've been there for most of their home games this season and there is a certain energy about that place where, particularly recently, where they've been scoring four, five, six and it, it's kind of felt like watching a Bayern side in terms of style of play, the way that they are able to blow teams away and the, the way that they're able to put the squeeze on the opponents as well. Jude Bellingham plays into the atmosphere as well. He's always trying to whip up the fans, which I always like to see. And I think is it's it's an English trait uh, of, of doing that almost also from, from minute one. German players seem to be a bit more reserved in that sense. So, yeah, I, I think that it's a very good chance, but also because Bayern have to go to Cologne uh, and get something uh, to um, emulate Kevin Keegan. Uh, they and, and Cologne are a side that Bayern have already dropped points against this season. Uh, yeah, it would look it, if, if Bayern were to win it from here, it would it would kind of be a bit of a sad indictment, I think. Um, potentially Jude Bellingham's last game for Dortmund, heavily linked to Real Madrid. Are you looking forward to? Are you sort of sad? I presume sad to see him go, but looking forward to seeing his career progress because you'll have watched more of him than pretty much anyone, I guess. I have. I think that, yeah, like, it's it's weird to say that he's, he's still a teenager and yet it feels like it's time. And also, to be honest, because I'm I'm still going to be working on the Bundesliga, I'm interested to see what Dortmund do with the money. And I would imagine that it will be around 150 million mark. And also for Dortmund to do their business, they, they need that money. 
Bellingham watching him. The incredible thing is, I can't really remember a serious dip in form at any point. And I think that's that's normal for a teenager, somebody in their early 20s as a player. That's been the most remarkable thing. And yeah, just this this iron willed focus and his his the energy that he's able to to spread to, to his teammates. Sometimes he has a go at teammates for not being up to his standards. <laughs> but yeah, I it, it's it's been incredible to watch him or I mean to begin with behind closed doors and then to see him play with a crowd. I it's yeah, it's it's been a privilege. Uh, what what will the fallout be at Bayern? I mean, this is this move for Tuchel is sort of it's sort of hilarious, isn't it? Because and I, Nagelsmann, okay, they they, they just knocked PSG out, hadn't they? The Champions League, pretty convincingly, and they lost what two or three all season, if that, in in the Bundesliga at least. So. I think I think they'd only lost two at that point in the Bundesliga. They'd lost to uh, Leverkusen and Augsburg, uh, and I think there were a lot of personal things about sacking Nagelsmann, as much as they felt that things weren't going in the right direction football-wise. And it it also felt like the club hierarchy had been waiting for that moment where it was the right time to to knife him, and they did what I would say is an unbiased move in that they were looking too much sideways about, oh no, somebody else might get Thomas Tuchel. We need to have him as opposed to what do we need most of all? And I found Tuchel pretty erratic so far. Um, he, the way he spoke about falling in love with the team with a shock after the Man City first leg, how he said he was, you know, Sadio Mane's biggest defender. And I don't remember him starting too many times since he punched Leroy Sané in the face. So, yeah, there there, there are many things that, that don't make sense. And the, the, the fallout will be there is a board meeting next week at Bayern where it would be very surprising if one of uh, Oliver Kahn, the current CEO, who's come under a lot of heat, uh, or Hassan Salihamidzic, sporting director who did the Mane deal and is responsible for the composition of the squad if one of them isn't fired. Uh, I would say it's more likely to be Khan because Hassan Salihamidzic is still seen as a representative of Uli Hernes, uh, even if he doesn't have a direct role of power in, in the club anymore as honorary president. What about relegation, Archie? Are you going to do attractiveness of the league? Just because there was an anecdote. Um, I can do whatever. What question? What do you want me to ask you? Hey, Archie, have you got a good anecdote about the attractiveness <laughs> of the league? <laughs> it's not actually about the attractiveness of the like league per, per se, but the point, <laughs> the point I wanted to make about the attractiveness of the league is I think that it's very subjective in the same way that with the Premier League, you need to know the characters involved to to enjoy the league in, you know, I think being well accustomed to Sam Allardyce and his mannerisms, I think is as much as you may not like him, uh, you, you you will have a feeling towards him, which will therefore kind of pull you in. And like, for example, one of the characters who I would pick out 
in the last year or so because he's kicked up a lot of fuss is Manuel Grefer, who was a referee who couldn't continue his career because he was past the age limit and kicked up a big fuss and has now gone into the media and has started to just rip into his colleagues' decisions <laughs> with abandon. And at the weekend, Denis Aitikin was the referee for, for Bayern Leipzig. And uh, Thomas Muller was doing an interview where he was looking pretty somber. And then Muller just stopped his interview and just kind of like almost kind of motioned to the reporter to be like, hey, hey, hang on a minute. So, so yeah, I saw it. it something cool. interesting's happening here. And Denny Zaitikin was going to one of the other reporters off mic, but on mic. Uh, in the stadium, no one talks about the ref. No one. And then Manuel Grafer sits there in Berlin with his 180 kilos and is chatting such shit. <laughs> um, so, like that, it, it, it's those kind of little, little bits of gossip as well that that keep you going along. Um, but also, look, the reality is, if if you had more time in your week, Max, I'd imagine you'd probably spend it with your kid. Not not watching even more football, and and the reality is there's only so much space for your attention, I think, in a week. And the rea- and another reality is, if German football is really to to you know break into the next level, it needs a club to reach the Champions League final again. That's what that's what created Borussia Dortmund in its modern form. Uh, was the very um, the very tasty combination of an incredibly charismatic coach in Jurgen Klopp, along with a team playing great football and going to a stage of visibility where everyone is watching them. And I think that for, for you to compete against all these other top clubs, that, that that's what you have to do to, to gain the interest. And the reality of that, if, of that happening now is low. Yeah, I think it's a really interesting question about you know everyone's football consumption and like everyone listening it will be different won't it but you have your team you then probably have you know the, most of our listeners the premier league whether your team is within that or not and then you sort of want interesting stories from elsewhere to sort of so you sort of know what's happening but you can't know everything right chris says how do we get an archie thomas Tuchel, thomas muller road trip documentary on netflix organized he seems to get the best out of them at interviews i don't pay you a compliment archie which is you do get more out of them, and I don't know if that's I don't know if other German interviewers do as well because they're more interesting or more relaxed in front of the camera. Or I wonder if it is because you sort of treat them like human beings and don't sort of bow at their feet every time you see them. Sorry, I'm, I'm stunned. A compliment from you, mm. Jesus no, take Christ! <laughs> I think I give. I think I'm. I think I'm quite generous with. Am I not generous with compliments? Oh, most of the time you're. I don't know. Not to me, you're not. <laughs> that's, that's, I, I, I went to the wrong person most, there. That's for sure. Most of the time you're you're saying get on with it. Um. So. Well, I, that is also true, but you know, get on with it. But like, yeah, true. Is that a conscious decision to just say, look, you know, you may be Thomas Muller, you may be Thomas Tuchel, but I'm just not going to sort of sort of be reverent to you like it, it's a process because like anyone starting off in that job i remember being bloody nervous when when starting it and thinking a, a few years ago oh wow i'm i'm standing right here next to xyz um so you get more comfortable and you need people behind you who who back you and um uh, also 
yeah, I, I think that f- football is meant to be fun, uh, which I think is also kind of, it's, it's your mantra that, that you have on the pod. Uh, and I think that it's just kind of trying to keep that there as well and not try and be too serious with them. And like, there's an advantage that in Germany, I think the the way that field reporters, um, post-match interviewers question uh, people can be very abrupt. And so coming from an English background where I think we're much more kind of trying to be diplomatic and be like, can you just explain like what, how you saw things as opposed to, I know German reporters who have gone to somebody after a defeat. Uh, you lost today. Why? <laughs> like that, that's fairly common. That's fairly common. So yeah, I think like there's a, a natural advantage that I have there. And, but also I'm just kind of interested and that helps. A few people got in touch about you being assaulted by the Bayern mascot. <laughs> did you? Uh, Bernie, bless him. Uh, so I had him, I, I, I say I, I had him on. So I, I interviewed him, um, well, he, he, he didn't speak, but he, he gestured uh, before Bayern lost in the cup to Freiburg. Um, and this was the first time I'd seen him on the touchline since then. And I, 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 I waved and he came over and like such was the force that he came over and hugged me with, he nearly broke my jaw. Um, <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah. Um, the funny thing is, as well, is that Bayern, before Bernie and I had had an interaction, had only lost three of their last 76 home games. Bernie has come over and seen me twice in the last six games, and they've lost both of them. So... He'd probably be well advised to stay away from me in the future. Finally, David says, will Archie be your fashion correspondent when you take over as the host of This Morning, Max? His snazzy jackets will go down a treat with the daytime TV audience. Absolutely. It's a great idea. We can plot a Football Weekly takeover. Uh, That'll do, Archie. Have you had enough? Thank you. No. Oh, you want 30 seconds on Fulham, do you? Damn right I do. Oh, God. Get on with it. Those are the rules. It's a legally binding agreement. Yeah, okay. For the first time in 40 years, Max we finished above Chelsea and it feels glorious. I'm swimming in it. I'm swimming in it. Oh, look, it's not going to happen again next season because it can't, but oh, just bathing in it for a couple of months and many relatives who will hear about this in the future. P.S. The ticket prices remain a joke and the club still remains spineless. Fair. Cowards on it. So yeah, that's, <laughs> that's that really. I actually, I saw something Jacob Steinberg reported the other day saying that West Ham were interested in buying Jao Palinha, which I thought was quite... They can simple. back off. Well, exactly. <laughs> I mean, well, what's the feeling within the... I would have thought fans were thinking you're going to build on that, not sort of sell your prize assets, or is it is Fulham the sort of club that has to... If he goes to a, if he goes to a top six club, fair enough. If he goes to West Ham, no... But I heard I had Marco Silva as well rumoured with West Ham as well. So, you know, that's the stepping stone that you are, I guess, Archie. What, in the same way that Peterborough is the, the stepping stone <laughs> from Cambridge, right? Well, fine, yes, I don't mind. No, we don't <laughs> we're better we're better than all of this. Thanks, Archie. Cheers, man. Archie Vint up there uh, uh, in Germany. Uh WSL and with the big games were on Sunday, were they, when uh, uh Chelsea played Arsenal and Manchester United played Manchester City, both Chelsea and Manchester United won, which means, Lucy, Chelsea need probably a point is enough unless Manchester United absolutely hammer Liverpool, but a win to be certain of the title. 
Um, you can't see Reading doing anything here, can you, Lucy? No, I mean, I mean, the, the best thing about the WSL this season is it's been competitive at both ends of the table, and we can't always say that uh, about the top as well. You, you know, the, there's been teams that have run away with it in the past. Then there's been two teams then three and then nothing at the other end relegation is there's, there's one team that's that's not very good and uh, the rest just just pull away from them but now this season there's sort of been reading there's been Leicester have been at the bottom for most of the season changed the manager uh, spurs have been struggling as well brighton um but at the moment it's reading and and to be it, it's that is reflective of the budget and in women's football if your budget similar to men's but it, i think it's it, it's more plain to see if your budget is high you tend to be the winner like that's why chelsea do so well because they spend the most money on their squad and reading don't really have that support um and they've done they've they've sort of um punched above their weight for season upon season they're well coached uh, but it looks like that they're the ones that are going to be going going down um which will be a shame but that's what we want we want you know the, them to be some competition at the bottom and and, and top of the division uh interesting did, did you see the, the 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 tweet about the investigation to the the amount of money that the men's clubs spend on agents' fees compared to what they spend on their women's teams. So it'd be quite useful to look at that. I mean, Chelsea say this they spend 20 million on the women's team, they spend hundreds of millions on agents' fees. And I think that's quite an, an, an interesting comparison um, in in sort of how I always say, you know, these men's clubs have dropped more running for the bus that they could put into their women's teams and make women's football a little bit more. Um, you know, put, put a little bit more behind it, and it will increase increase what's happening with it. But um, yeah, I, I saw that, and I and I thought we still got a long way to go. We're fifty years behind, and I keep saying that, but I think we're doing all right. I think for Chelsea and and Emma Hayes, the elusive Champions League is still a little bit out of reach. She is going to lose Penilla Harder and uh, Magda Eriksson to Bayern Munich, I think. So that she's going to she's already made five signings. I think Emma Hayes again. You know, she's got a lot of backing from Chelsea, so she can go out and do that. And, you know, these women footballers, the best ones are, are benefiting from from that and, and you know, and getting the money that they deserve. So it'd be interesting next season. But I do think that this season, I think it'd be real shock if 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 Chelsea don't win it. But Man United have been brilliant. Manchester City got themselves going and, and obviously Arsenal struggled with injuries because I think they'd have been up there if, if they hadn't have had the injuries that they'd had. Lucy, I see Izzy Christensen has announced her retirement and said she wants to focus on her burgeoning media career. She's coming for you, isn't she? <laughs> she is, but you know what? She's a little bit smaller than me, so I reckon that I could like sort of push her down the stairs or something. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I mean, Izzy's doing really well um, on Sky. I mean, she's, she's a great character uh, on Five Live, but I thought... You see, what you've got to do, if you get a chance, you know what the industry's like, if you get a chance uh, to get into a broadcasting career, then I think that she's probably made the right choice, to be honest, to, to similar to what Karen Carney did uh, right at the right time. Um, you know, she's she, she owes Everton nothing. She's had a great career. She played for England, one of the best players that we've had in recent times. Played over in Leon. She's done brilliant. All right, that'll do for part two. Guardian Women's Football Weekly's out every Tuesday. Uh, download that wherever you get your podcasts and listen to it. Uh, Susie Rack will join us on Monday to recap the final day of the WSL. And congratulations to Susie, who last night uh, was the winner of the uh, Vicky Orvis Award uh, for New Women's Sports Writing at the Sports Book Awards, uh, the Sunday Times Book Awards. Uh, a women's game by 
uh, Susie. Uh, so buy that book and read that book. Well done to Susie. Uh, that's uh, great news. And that'll do for part two. Uh, we'll do the England squads and any other business in part three. Welcome to part three of the Guardian Football Weekly. Uh, just an update on Vinicius Jr. Um, and the racism discussion that we had uh, on the last pod. Valencia have been sanctioned with a partial stadium closure for five matches uh, following that racist abuse. Spanish police have detained three people in connection with the abuse. Um, and Valencia been fined €45,000. Uh, his re- late red card's been rescinded, uh, meaning he won't be suspended. Valencia called the decision uh, disproportionate, unjust and unprecedented, said they intend to appeal against that part of the sanction. Uh, La Liga president Javier Tebas has apologised. He said, I think that the message and the intention I had was not understood by a significant number of people, especially in Brazil. Uh, he was speaking to ESPN Brazil. I did not want to attack Vinicius, but if most people understood it that way, uh, I need to apologise. It was not my intention. I expressed myself badly at a bad time. The rail players walked out uh, for their game against Rio Vallecano wearing um, uh, Vinicius Junior shirts and held a banner which read racists out of football. Uh, Guillaume Balaguer tweeting, La Liga wants more power to punish racism. Uh, Marker, the paper, used the cover to remind readers uh, more than disliking racism, we have to be anti-racist. We have to fight. The biggest voices in Spain have shown their support for Vinny, who is the victim and should be treated as such. Nothing will be resolved fully in a week or a month or a year. In fact, fight against discrimination is forever. But it does feel like everyone is listening now and finally. So uh, look, we'll talk to Sid about that next time he's on, of course. Uh, the England squad's been announced uh, for the games in June. That's what we need, Barry. Some more football at the end of the season. <laughs> I suppose the interesting uh, calls are Lewis Dunk coming back in. He's not played since 2018. And Eberichi Eza pla- uh, coming in as well. Yeah, uh, there's a few talking points. Um, Sam Johnson's been called up instead of Nick Pope. I think Nick Pope's just had surgery on his hand or his wrist or something, so I presume that's why he's not in the squad. He hasn't done a thing wrong all season. And Sam Johnson has been very good. Uh, I'm curious, actually, to... I know uh, Lucy is very fond of Calvin Phillips because he he's one of her boys from her time at Leeds. He hasn't played much this season. He's still in the England squad. Do you see a future for him at City or do you think he should move? Or do you think he will move? I look at City and I think that when Guardiola buys these players, I think that they don't not not many of them fit in straight away. So I'm talking Rodri sat on the bench and watched Fernandinho. Um, Grealish didn't get in and play well straight away. I think the penny has to drop. And I think Guardiola is the one who decides whether the penny's dropped or not in terms of how they play. So I would suspect if he's patient, I know for a fact that he he is is not particularly happy with not playing, which, you know, if he, if he was happy, then there'd be a problem. And it's been frustrating for him. But I think that's part of the process. I think that's part of growing up as a, uh, as a footballer, that you need to get used to the things that don't always go your way. But he's at the right place to to develop. And I can imagine if he stays, then he will get more of a chance, just just like the other players. Nathan Ake, again, you know, there was loads of questions about whether he was going to, or he'll leave because he's hardly playing. But there's a, there's a process that goes on behind the scenes at City, I think, that that he lets them loose, Pep, when he knows that they're ready. And Ake has proved this season, Rodri has proved over the last couple of seasons that that's exactly what happens. So, you know, I'm hoping that that happens with Calvin. I, I think Gareth Southgate and the England squad, he has players that he's not going to just keep switching 
from players, different group of players each time. He has a base of players that if he knows that they're doing all right, then he'll pick them. Harry, Harry Maguire is another one. And obviously he knows how Calvin plays. He knows how, how he is with him. And he knows he's has a season of being coached by Guardiola. So, you know, that's probably why. And I can understand how people look and think, well, he's hardly played. Why is he in there? But again, um, I'm biased. You mentioned Pep there. Interesting thought, Paul. Um, if you if you look at the way, you know, what Pep's done with John Stones and to a lesser extent Carl Walker, but that kind of football, do you, do you think Southgate could do the same? Could sort of almost ring up Pep or just say to John Stones, what are you doing and can, can we do it? I mean, I don't know if they need to do it. I saw some interesting tweeting on that subject yesterday about, you know, an in-possession formation that, that, that moves John Stones into, into midfield. And maybe it does. I, I, I kind of feel like um, that uh, Southgate maybe doesn't always get some credit himself for some of the things he's done. I mean, I think it was him who first started playing Kyle Walker as a, as a centre-half and a three, which in that formation they play for City... When uh, if, if Stones moves out of centre centre defence, that's what that's what Walker does. Um, I, I, another point of comparison, I just thought, and, and and also sorry to go back to Southgate and his style of play. Set pieces has always been you know incredibly important part of the England team, England uh, Southgate's approach to England, and that's that's something that the more direct play of City uh, on with with Haaland in the team has also been something notable. So maybe the information flow can go both ways, um, but. I just thought it was very striking what Southgate said in his press conference yesterday about Ivan Tony, um, about his uh, about his the fact he had spoken to him and that he felt it was very important that somebody was supported uh, in a moment like this. That if it, if it's if it's we still don't know the, the the written reasons for why he's been suspended, but if it is an addiction, if it is a if it is a problem that this player has, that he should be helped and not ostracised. And and I, and I just thought, a that's the that's a humane and decent thing to say that for me, the right approach and just confirms what kind of a geezer Southgate is. But it's it's also something that he uses his press conferences to say what he actually thinks rather than to play mind games, which, you know, to go back to Guardiola is what we were kind of talking about at the beginning, you know, is he sort of trying to uh, uh, soften up managers before he plays them. Um, Yeah. Yeah. I just thought that was quite striking. Some breaking news, Barry, is that Arna Slot has just turned down Spurs. <laughs> so some more good news for them. I mean, who knows? I'll end up in charge there. Uh, I, I don't know if they thought that deal was over the line. He is not going to slot right in there, uh, but hopefully someone will. So, you know, who knows what's happening there. Nagelsmann's still about, isn't he? Nagelsmann is still about. That is true. Uh, Declan says, can we have a pod special on explaining the difference between a holiday and a mini retirement? Could you make it as simple as, as, the, <laughs> as, as the one you made about NFTs and crypto? Uh, Colin says, how has Gary Neville gone through life not knowing what a holiday is? Our football is that sheltered. It's amazing, Barry, isn't it? It's a, he was on the Diary of a CEO podcast, which I've not, I've listened to a couple of them, I think. Um, but yes, it's it's much the same as the high performance podcast. Mm. Yes, some real vibes. The you know we are. It's just like I'm successful, you're successful. How this is how we're successful. But for anybody who hasn't heard it, it's Gary Neville described going away for a weekend in Spain, where he will kind of switch his phone off and relax as a mini retirement. And he says, people like you and me, we don't have six months sabbaticals. Like who who's having a six months? Who's having six months sabbaticals? Who where? I don't know. Anyway, it was a, it's a hilarious clip. I mean, I like Gary Neville, but I just thought that was quite funny. I mean, Lucy, you've spent more, spent more time with footballers than, than most of us. 
I mean, I mean, I think they, most footballers know what a holiday is, don't they? Yeah, yeah, they do. But they are mollycoddled from, you know, especially if they go through a good academy where they don't really have to do that much for themselves. And they try to sort of teach them, but still people want to do a lot for them. So then they end up at 35 if they're lucky at the end of their career and then thinking, right, what? What shall I do now? How does that work? So, yeah, I can understand how he said that with a straight face. John says, is the pod in crisis? Nick says, after John Bruin's mistake, I'll trust you'll have a talk with him. Uh, many others got in touch with this about John Bruin's Gandalf gaff. Um, oh, and, no. Uh, uh, <laughs> Gandalf, is it? Well, I don't know, Gangaff. Anyway, here is John to explain. Hello, listeners. Uh, uh, John Bruin, son of Dan Bruin, uh, calling in here. And, and the reason I wanted to... Uh, leave a message with you, the listeners, uh, is that in the recent podcast, I made a terrible mistake and I've offended the uh, Tolkien uh, Lord of the Rings community, uh, uh, for which I, I uh, am deeply sorry. In my uh, foolish mistake, I suggested that Gandalf the Grey try to fend off evil with the line, you shall not pass at Helm's Deep. Well, it appears that actually... This took place uh, when Gandalf was uh, defending the Fellowship of the Ring from the Balrog as they crossed the bridge of Kazakh Dum while fleeing the mines of Moria. And so that is a grave mistake. And I, and I, I make that mistake having been uh, a read The Lord of the Rings when I was probably about eight or nine. Uh, I once spent a, uh, a very wet... Um, Holiday in Hastings, in which I read The Silmarillion three times over. But I'm afraid my JRR knowledge has descended since then. Uh, I reread the books when the films came out. Didn't bother with the Hobbit films. Looked a bit much, really. Oh, nine hours for that. Uh, and then uh, didn't make much of the latest Amazon series. But for those of you offended, I'm sorry. Maybe it's time to go back to the books. Of course, John there mentioning a holiday he had in Hastings. I mean, presumably he, as an eight-year-old, at that point he didn't realise what he was having was a mini-retirement when he read all of Tolkien's work. Anyway, uh, Ian says, to what extent were football club DJs responsible for Tina Turner's royalty income in the 1990s? Hashtag simply the best. It's a very good point. There was not a football match where Simply the Best wasn't played over the Tannoy uh, in the 90s, I'm pretty sure. Uh, Paul, do you want a Norwich 30 seconds? Uh, I'd rather not. There was some really awful um, media business by our um, sporting director, Stuart Webber, who hadn't spoken to uh, about his job. He's sort of the front of the of the operation outside of the coaches. And he, he used to do a lot of media, didn't do anything after people started mocking him for wanting to climb Mount Everest. And he came back and after a terrible season for Norwich, really given expectations, particularly, he just kind of was utterly defensive and put his foot in it in some awful ways, particularly about his lack of interest in women's football, which I, I just, it's so, uh, it was just... It was just rude and it was unnecessary. And I think there's a lot of people who are kind of like, what What was that about? You've hardly uh, built bridges that you previously burned. But on the other hand, we signed Ashley Barnes. So there you go. Oh, wow. That's exciting. <laughs> I mean, it doesn't feel like a Norwich City player 
to me. But of course... Well, indeed, indeed. A change of mentality, yeah, perhaps. Yeah, I hope so. I mean, you've had your target men in the past, haven't you? Your Rosarios. Yeah, and Grant Holt. Grant Holt, of course. Yeah, Grant Holt. Absolutely, yeah. Oh, wonderful. I look forward to seeing Ashley Barnes in the yellow of Norwich. Um, and William says, I've been listening to Football Weekly regularly since its second season. For me, the phrase, it's Nietzsche adjacent at the very least, uh, regarding the end of our last pod with Johnny Lou, is the completion of the Football Weekly experiment from boy banter to maturely applied philosophy. Well done. Uh, I did have to Google Nietzsche's uh, main thoughts on life uh, afterwards, um, but I appreciate that, and that'll do for, for today. Thanks, Barry. So it's all about the self, isn't it? Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Only yeah. you can make things happen. I think that's what Nietzsche right. was saying. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, God is dead. So he was the original sort of <laughs> grifter when it came to... Yeah, he would have made a great podcast host, Nietzsche, I reckon. He really, really would. God is dead. Pod is dead. Maybe that's it. William says we've completed, so we don't need to do any more. So this was our final ever episode. Uh, thanks, Paul. Thank you very much. Thanks, Lucy. Thank you. Thanks, Baz. Cheers. Football Weekly is produced by Joel Grove with Arif Islam. Our executive producer is Max Sanderson. This is The Guardian.